Turn, if you would, to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, we'll pick up in verse 7, read down to verse 12. And now, Jesus is actually going to now elaborate. He's going to begin to speak, in essence, to the heart of the issue that he's really been talking about, kind of in a negative sense, as he's confronted all these things that we shouldn't do and shouldn't be hypocritical in. You know, he's talked about money, he's talked about relationships, he's talked about where our treasure is, all those kind of things. And he's done so chiefly from, from the side of, of the negative. He said, look, you can't be hypocritical. And so as we now turn our attention to uh, what is known throughout almost the entire world as the golden rule, it's really more of asking and seeking and knocking. Because you need to talk to the Lord, you need to seek the Lord, you need to knock on the Lord's door if you're ever going to have a chance at keeping what Jesus says as we get to verse 12. If you're not in fellowship, if you're not in unity, if you're not in harmony, if you haven't been spending time with Jesus, then the golden rule is an impossibility. And furthermore, if you're not a member of the, of the family of God, This is something that's so far out of the league of the world's ability that that the world really doesn't have much choice but to seek the opposite of this, and that's really to do for yourself what you want to have done for yourself and then hope that other people also do those things for you. The world looks at it actually from the opposite side in a general sense. And so the Lord's really going to apply the lessons that we've already learned. We've been looking at kingdom living and how that works out in our lives We've seen issues related to self and morality and religion and money and possessions and all these things. And so now Jesus turns his attention really to how does that relate to the world around us? What do we do? How do we live it out? And most of you know that the the Nike motto is just do it, right? You know, you see all their commercials, it's just do it. At the end of every day, for the body of Christ, for us who are members of God's one church that we saw today that have that one spirit, it boils down to this in application. We have to just do it. It doesn't do us any good to know something, to think something, to have an opinion about something if that something doesn't change who we are. And if that something changing who we are doesn't relate to what we do with who we are. If you say you're a kind person and you don't act kindly, then one can question whether you're a kind person. You understand? If, if you say that you're a, a giving person and you don't act in giving towards other people, then people will question whether you're actually a giving person. And so it is with these kingdom principles. It boils down to we need to just do it. And so we need to ask the Lord for the power to do that. We need to seek the Lord to do those things. And we need to knock really hard so that we can understand what it is that he would want to do with us as the church. And so we'll pick up in Matthew 7 and verse 7 and down through verse 12. Our uh, 20th study here in the Sermon on the Mount. This, This amazing message that Jesus delivered to his disciples with the, with the crowds listening in. And so let's pray and ask God to speak to us in our time tonight as we're gathered in this place. And Heavenly Father, we again just want to draw near to you. And Lord, we want you to speak to us and encourage us and strengthen us. And 
Father, we pray that you would now work in our lives in a, in a wonderful way through the power of this message that you delivered uh, specifically to your disciples, to people who knew you, who, who called you Savior and Lord. Lord, these things would be impossible without that being the first thing. And so, Lord, we ask that as your children, uh, you would now speak to us. Refresh us, Lord. Gird us up for this week, all that you will allow into it, all that you will bring to us, Lord. Would we be prepared as we study your word? We ask these things in the amazing, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 7, it says here in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And so Jesus begins by putting the emphasis on really seeking out the things of the Lord and applying three separate steps of actionable information. In other words, if we hear something, if I hear something one time, then I want to seek after it. And if I've sought after it and I really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, then I want to really knock on every door to figure out exactly what it is and how that thing applies in my life. You see, we need to ask of the Lord. We need to then seek of the Lord. Now, we really need to knock hard on the Lord's door, in essence, to have these things come deeply into our lives. Because if you just ask, you're going to get a tertiary amount of information. You'll get a little bit on the surface. And so the Lord says to us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now bear in mind that this whole message has been to Christians. It's been to believers. And so he's not saying this as a way that if you you know, just dial up your, your God genie phone, that God's obligated to give you absolutely everything that you're looking for, everything that you ask for as an unbeliever, or even those things which we might ask as, as even believers for that are not in line with God's will. He's simply saying that as these things, these truths are applied to our lives, we have to seek them, we have to ask for them, we have to knock on his door in order to have them come into our lives. And he goes on to illustrate this by saying, or, or what man is there among you? And, and so he again turns to the rhetorical. This is often used uh, in, the, in the scriptures to help us understand things. He asks a question. That question demands a negative answer. That negative answer is how we would look at it. In essence, you would say, of course not. You know, no good man would ever do such a thing. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? You can see the negative answer. There's just not a chance in this world that anyone who's a real dad's going to do that. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. And it's interesting because the word translated fish there is the, is the word that's used a fish for a meal. It's not just a live fish. It's not just any fish. It isn't like a goldfish or a fish you look at. This is a fish that you could eat. And so the implication is here, it's also uh, something that's food. But interestingly enough, you have two different types of things there. Because fish was clean and a serpent is unclean. So in one you have a physical example, in the other you have a spiritual example. In bread you have something you need physically, and in a fish, 
as he turns to a serpent, to a Hebrew, to someone who's of Hebrew descent, if you were to take a fish, you'd be giving somebody something that's clean. But if you gave them a serpent that was cooked, it'd be unclean. But you know what? When you chunk up a rattlesnake, it looks just like a fish. You see there's deception in that one. But if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to go, or good things to those who ask of him? And therefore, and here it comes, whatever you want men to do to you, and notice the positive aspect of it. He's been almost completely focused on, on the hypocritical and the negative. All these things that we shouldn't be. Don't be as the hypocrites are. And now he switches to the positive. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is actually the conclusion of the main theme of the, of the Sermon on the Mountain. So he now shifts to the positive side. It's kind of a summation of all the principles that are related to human relationships here in this passage. And you see, not being unjustly critical of a person is not the same as loving them. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can, you can kind of stay away from the negative things in somebody's life. You know, you can see a fault in them and just choose to let it go. That's actually still good, but it's not the same thing as actively going and loving that person who's in a fault. It's not the same thing as treating them kindly when they've treated you poorly. You see, this now goes the extra mile. This is picking up uh, really where all of the rest of these have left off. It's one thing to know what not to do, and now it comes into view what we need to do, what we need to be. You, You see, the positive side of everything, and especially the positive side of love, is the active side, right? You know, we, we can talk all day long about what love is or what love isn't. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 13, there's both. Love is and love isn't. Love is not puffed up. Love keeps no record of wrong. There's some things that love isn't. But there's also some things that love is. And those are the harder things to do. Amen? Love is patient and kind. Well, it's being patient. You you see the difference there? On one hand, you shouldn't be these things if you really love somebody. But the active side of love, the tougher side of love, is actually being kind to someone who's being mean to you. That's harder than ignoring their faults or letting them go. It requires effort and energy on our part. And so as we're asking of the Lord, as we're seeking of the Lord, as we're knocking on the Lord for wisdom on how to treat other people, We have to actually do what we say we believe. We can't just say it. We can't just kind of sort of not do the wrong thing. We have to now take the next step, which is to do the right thing. We have to actively love people. We have to actually be kind to those who persecute us and do evil things, say things wrongly against us. And it's interesting when you actually look at the three most common words that are used for love uh, in, in, the, in the original language that we find in the New Testament. They're phileo and eros and agape. And all of those actually require action. 
Every one of them is an action word. Love's, love's not in, in, a, in a vacuum. You can't actually say that you love somebody and then do nothing with it. It's almost an impossibility. It becomes just some, a misty feeling. And so this verse found here in verse 12 is often called the, really the, the, the golden rule, but it's called the Mount Everest of ethics, really, by uh, many commentators, especially those guys from the 17 and 1800s. And so we're going to see three things in this passage tonight. And three very important things, because Jesus gives us really three reasons for obeying the command to love others as we love ourselves. And so he illustrates his own point. And it's a very impressive illustration. And just like Nike's slogan, just do it, 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 he's not saying just talk about it. He's not saying write about it. He's not saying theorize about it. He's not saying communicate it. He's saying just do it. Do for other people what you would want them to do for you. Show them what it looks like to be gentle. Show them what it looks like to be meek. Show them what it looks like to be kind. Show them what it looks like to be humble. Show them what it looks like to be a good steward. Show them what it looks like to be a truth teller. Show them what it looks like to be these things. Actually do it for them. When you do that, you take away everyone's arguments as to, as to what you were trying to communicate. Anybody else in here ever used a whole bunch of words to describe something only to find out that what you said did not communicate what you thought it meant? Anybody ever do that? I do it all the time. I get people asking, well, I don't think I said that. And I listened to the CD and I actually did not say what they thought I said, but how I communicated it made them believe something other than what I actually said. Maybe it was tone, maybe it was what it was mixed with. You see, communication is very varied. But if I tell you that this is Kevin's guitar and I'm going to pick it up and I walk over there and I actually grab Kevin's guitar and I pick it up, that illustration is unmistakable, isn't it? I could have meant that I was just going to pick up Kevin's guitar and maybe I'd learn how to play it, right? But if I physically go over and do it, it leaves very little to chance. And so Jesus is now going to say, in essence, do it. Just do it. If you want someone to be kind to you, be kind to them. If you want someone to love you without question, you love them without question. If you want them to tell you the truth, tell them the truth. Three things. These are the, the reasons for obeying this command to love others as, as we ought to love ourselves. Number one, it's part of his promise to us. Number two, it's a model for his children. And, and as his children, it's required of us. And number three, it is a purpose for his children. And so it is required of us. So it is a promise to us, it is a model to us, and it is a purpose for us as we live out our lives on this earth. This is kind of a bridge between the negative teaching and, the, and, and this one positive statement that the Lord makes. And so all of these considerations begin to drive us back to the Lord. You see, here's why. God gives us all kinds of principles throughout the word. When you read the Bible... There are hundreds, if not thousands, of individual principles on how to do all kinds of different things, what to think about certain things, how to treat things. But God doesn't take the time to explain every single circumstance in your life. Anybody ever notice that? I can tell you in counseling, when you sit down with people, 
you know, it's pretty easy, thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you know what question I get asked very often? Well, what constitutes adultery? You know, if, if uh, and, and you go through all these things. Same thing for drunkenness. We're not supposed to be drunken as believers, right? And so people will actually ask, well, if you have three beers, is that drunken? We're kind of like that, aren't we? We like to test the envelope. And so the Lord gives us a very general and yet so applicable principle that you can take and apply it to anything and everything. And it's going to be right 100% of the time. If you want someone to do something for you, then you do that thing for them. You see, it takes everything and says, look, this is how we handle it in the Lord. And so he gives us a general principle that could be applied to virtually any circumstance in your life. It's amazing truth. If you want to see what happens if you try and do it the other way, look at the IRS tax code. The basic IRS tax code is over 28,000 pages. Did you know that? That's the basic. That's not the specific tax code. That's the basic tax code. And so if you have two chickens, you, you, you pay this much tax. We have stuff in there that you didn't even know was in there. And so when you start breaking it down, you'd end up making all these miscellaneous laws and rules about virtually anything and everything. And so rather than do that, Jesus uses a handful of words to communicate to us this incredible privilege that we have to be as kids. And so he uses as an example this principle of asking and seeking and knocking. I will tell you this as well. God doesn't want us to have every single answer in our hip pocket. You know why? Because you stop walking by faith then. If he were to give you an answer for absolutely everything, then you no longer need to go to him for anything. So if he gives you an answer for it in advance, you're not coming to him. Remember, we're supposed to treat him also as our heavenly father. Fathers like to be talked to by their kids. We want to hear from our children. We want to know that they're doing okay. We want to know that that relationship is intact. And, and so he says to us, look, why don't, you, why don't you just ask me for these things? And so these principles that the Lord lays out for us, it, it begins this way. Look, this is, this is for us as believers And you think about that as we looked at this morning. We're actually all part of the family of God, amen? And there's only one church. There's there's this giant thing called called the church. And it's made up of anyone who names the name of the Lord, who walks with the Lord, does the, the will of the Lord. And so these kingdom concepts that we've been looking at in this whole Sermon on the Mount, are kind of the the rule of the Lord, how he would rule in our lives. And, And then he comes and he starts dealing with the family concepts. We have the rules, we have the house rules, so to speak. And then he comes along and he says, okay, this is how we work them out. This is how we apply them. This is what we do with them. I don't know if you have house rules at your house, if you have anything on the wall that says, you know, you, you can go down to like home goods and you can buy like they have all kinds of stuff like that. It's like you won't speak unkindly to people and you'll be nice and you'll always finish your broccoli and stuff like that. It's on your wall, right? And here the Lord gives us a single rule that if you think about it, pretty much works for everything. In relationship, one with another. We are the family of God. We're actually called Galatians 6.10, we're called the household of faith. Ephesians 2, we're called God's household. John repeats to us all kinds of things. He says that God's our father there in 1 John 1. He calls us God's children. He speaks to us each other as we relate to each other as brothers or as sisters in the Lord. 
It's not a gender-specific title. It just simply means that we're family and we're siblings. We're God's family. And so two of these great realities is that God is our father and we are brothers and sisters. God's our father and we're brothers and sisters. So inside of the house, if you take this the way it's intended and you actually look at it, here's what happens. When you're in your family, you know, you kind of want to be treated with love and respect, right? So you treat everybody else with love and respect. If you want your parents to do right to you, for you, then you do right to them and for them. That's how it works. It, it, it prospers that type of mentality that says, hey, these things are going to work out for everyone's benefit if I do them that way. And so he begins to, to look at these things uh, from this, this singular standpoint. You see this idea of asking and seeking and knocking, it, we see a progression. We go from simple asking to kind of more aggressive seeking to very aggressive knocking. It's as if the intensity uh, ramps up. So if we want to have our motivations right, we need to make sure that we actually go after the information that we're looking for. We need to seek God and look for wisdom from him. We have to submit, in other words, to his will. And remember that James 1 reminds us that we're not to expect that we're going to receive anything from God if we're double-minded in our ways, amen? We need to have a singular focus on how we approach these things. So you can't ask God for one thing and then do something else. We need to be obedient to what he's actually talking about. And so when we know his will, we're supposed to do his will. And we can't operate, in essence, by assumption. So, So we don't have the right to ask something of him that we're not engaging with him in. You know, it's always, it's a strange thing to me that people want God's blessing in one area of their life, but they're willing to be disobedient in another area of their life. They, they, they want God to, you know, fix relationships, but they lie in those relationships. Or they, they want God to, to bless them with a husband or bless them with a wife, but their, you know, their whole relationship is built on some sinful behavior that is not going to make a foundation that's a good marriage. You see, we need to actually do what God's word says if we want to receive the blessing of that obedience. And so here he's saying, look, ask me, seek from me, knock, use faith. Same thing applies, and as he's already spoken about financial issues and money, the same thing applies there, you know. So very often, we, we as God's kids, we wonder why God's not blessing our finances. Well, we're not faithful with our finances. Both things need to be true. What we want of God, we need to give to God. What we want from other people, we need to model for them, show them. You need to instruct people by using your own life as an example. And so here's his model for his children. That's his promise to us, and here's his model for us. Verse 9, what man is there among you who, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, and this is one of those statements where Jesus plainly says that mankind is not by nature good. And he's actually talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. And he says then, if you, being evil, that's Jesus declaring what we are in in our natural state, our human nature. Mankind is not naturally good. We are naturally evil. We can be good. We can even do good things. But inside, 
That's why scripture says dwells no good thing. Inside, says it's a deceitful heart. It's desperately wicked. And who can even know it? We, we actually have uh, in us, uh, in essence, some ingrained, some, some built-in evil, if you will, that Adamic or that nature that we have in Adam. So if you ask for a fish, will he give him a serpent? So that if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, because we'd never do those things, right? That's the implication here in what he's saying. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Now think about it. What Jesus is saying is, look, you guys are kind of a mess because you're human beings. And you can actually do good things for your kids. That's why Ephesians 5, remember as we were in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5 there in the very first couple of verses, it says, therefore be imitators of God. Don't be imitators of other human beings, because if you're imitators of other human beings, you may have some good things that they do, but ultimately their motivations are generally a little more selfish than, than God would like. Of you being imitators of God, there it says in Ephesians 5, you should walk in love, just as Christ also walks. So he's, he's again, focusing on, the, on the carrying these things out. Look, by nature, we're imperfect. Amen? By nature, we, we kind of have some issues at times. And so he gives us two rhetorical questions. The first one physical, the second one spiritual. He says, what man among you, when his son asks him for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Well, the answer to that is, duh, none of us. None of us are going to do that. You know, your kids come up and they want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you go out in the yard and you grab a couple of pieces of Palos Verde stone and, you know, slap some weeds between it and here. You're not going to do that. Number one, because you're selfish and you don't want the dental bills to go from them, you know, chowing down on a piece of rock. You know, you're, you're going you're to think selfishly, I'm not doing that, you know. All those dents, you know, those... The orthodontia that we had done is going to go to waste if we do that. Now, even from a selfish standpoint, you wouldn't do that. It's obvious that no one, no loving father would ever do something like that. Matter of fact, not even the cruelest of fathers would even think about doing that one. You see, if, if, if the son even actually discovered that, imagine, what. Say, let's say that you, you were able to somehow pull it off. You, you went out and you found this rock and it, you know, let's say it, you go up by Mammoth Lakes and you find a big hunk of pumice and it looks like a nice loaf of sourdough and it's light enough that maybe somebody could get confused and you put it inside of a Schatz bakery bag and you seal it up and you go, here, here's a loaf of bread for you. And they, you know, it's like, oh, great, dad, you know, and they open it up and they pull out a rock. Can you imagine what that deception would do to them? They've asked you for a loaf of bread and you've given them a hunk of pumice, a piece of rock. What are they supposed to do with that other than float it in the nearest lake? One of the cool things about pumice, it floats. But nobody's going to do that. No father's going to go through all that trouble because if your kids found out about it, the physical and the mental duress that that would cause would be unfathomable. And so God isn't going to do that to you. God's not the God of deception. Notice the second example he uses. If a son asks you for a fish, are you going to give him a snake? And the idea here is not that that snake would be, you know, some wiggling, writhing snake. I mean, most kids are going to figure that one out pretty quickly. It's like, 
Dad, that's a, that's a snake. But if you chunk that snake up and cut it into nice little sections and dipped it in some wonderful buttermilk batter and put some cornbread on it and throw it in a deep fat fryer, just like you would do a fish and you hand them the chunk of fish and you hand them the chunk of snake. And all of a sudden, if you're a Hebrew and you start chowing down, well, the fish is okay, but now you've made your kid unclean if they chew on the snake. You see, the picture here is spiritual deception. In order for us to model for people, we have to be spiritually upright. We have to be physically, morally upright, and we have to be spiritually upright before everyone, especially our own kids, our own families, our own spouses. We have that obligation. And so that snake would be an unclean animal. Luke's account of this passage actually throws another spin on it because it even goes a little further and a little deeper and adds a scorpion in there. Somebody wants an egg, you're going to hand it. Because if you look at the, especially some of the desert scorpions, they're fairly large and during the heat of the day, they actually curl up in a little bit of a ball and and you can find them hiding from the sun. Can you imagine if, if your child is asking you for an egg and you put a nice fat scorpion on their plate now it even looks like you intend to do them harm and so you've gone from doing good and providing for their needs to trying to break out their teeth to wanting the very best for them to destroying them spiritually and then even going so far as to try and kill them no father's going to do that No mother's going to do that. No one who cares about anyone else's well-being would ever think about doing those things. And then he goes on to give us this principle in in technical. He says, if you being evil, that is in your fallen human nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, know what to do when your kids come asking, how much more do you think your heavenly father knows what to do for you? And so he's illustrating what is going to be this golden rule that's going to come to us. In a general sense, our, our, our fathers, or, or we as fathers, mankind is inherently, you know, we've got some issues. We do some dumb things. You can see it in the way uh, kids are abused. But what we normally do is we make gods in our own image. So when we make up our own rules, we make up rules that we can actually follow and keep, Right? you don't understand that, all you need to do is look at the Greek or the Roman pantheon and realize what those gods represented, give you an idea of that. In Greek mythology, you learn of this goddess Aurora. She's the goddess of dawn. She falls in love with Tithonus, who's a a mortal youth. Zeus, the king of the gods, promises to grant her any gift that she can choose. All she has to do is ask one thing, and so she asked that Tithonus might live forever. One problem she forgot to ask that he would also stay young. He did live forever, but he turned into a hag. She stayed young. And so Zeus grants that. You you see, we make up imperfect gods to match our imperfect behavior and our imperfect ways. But God is perfect. And so everything he does, he does perfectly. And so when he gives us a rule, he gives us perfect rules. He gives us perfect examples, perfect principles. 
You see, we're kind of capricious, and so we do things our own way, and we usually kind of hedge it a little bit so it works out best for us. That's the way we do those things, but not so with God. And so Jesus uses that phrase much more. How much more does God love his own kids? He's divinely merciful. He's divinely gracious. There's no limit to his treasure. And so as we're asking and seeking and knocking and trying to find these principles out for ourselves and figure out what God wants us to do and be, he is divine in how he expresses those things to us. He continues to input into our lives. Our greatest human parental love can't compare to God's love. God knows exactly what to give us. And so Jesus is kind of setting us up uh, for, the, for the golden rule, for this one command, if you will. And he proclaims it very boldly. He says, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And so he goes on now to give us the purpose for his children. You, you see, this is what's required of us. He's given us in general sense. He's spoken all these things and this parabolic teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and now he boils it all down to verse 12. And therefore, so he says, look, I've given you these principles. <laughs> Don't give someone ask you for something. Make sure you give them what they ask for don't don't give them a rock if they ask you for bread and don't give them an unclean serpent if they ask you for a fish therefore whatever you want men to do to you you see because the truth is the father wouldn't want the rock either as bread the father wouldn't want the serpent either for the fish the father wouldn't want the scorpion for the egg whatever you want men to do you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. And he says, so the, the sum and the total of all the teaching of the Old Testament was normally broken down. When you talked about it in a general sense, it was the law, the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets. That would be all the prophetic works. So everything else, in essence, other than the historical books. So all of the things that spoke about God and, and his, his love for man and how he relates to us and how we're supposed to relate to him, you want to boil it down, here it is. The true meaning of all of this now becomes very explicit to us. You see, believers can do ethical things and unbelievers can do ethical things and every once in a while an unbeliever can do even a magnanimous thing. But you can't sustain that kind of righteousness unless you're actually one of God's kids. Because eventually you bump into somebody who rubs you the wrong way and you're, you're going to give them a rock instead of bread. Matter of fact, you might hit them with the rock instead of the bread. And you're probably going to grab a serpent and go, here, have some fish. <laughs> you might even grab a scorpion and say, hey, have you tried these eggs? They're really good. They're extra large. Be- because that's what happens if you don't know the Lord. You just fall back on who you are. You fall back on that internal nature. You, you start to think, well, how can I get even? You know, what can I do to kind of make things right here for myself? Because that's what our humanness tells us to do. But we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, amen? You know, when you think about how much you love you, you start thinking about your neighbor differently. When you start thinking about what you would want other people to do for you and to you, you start thinking about what you do to them very differently. When you actually put this into practice, when you take this principle and start to live it, 
when you just do it. You see, that's the the beauty of this passage. Paul specifically talked about us as the household of faith, and he he called us, you know, called us into that that place to where we need to realize that we're actually indebted to our neighbor, and how we treat others is, is determined, in essence, by what we expect from them. And if we're going to expect something from them, we need to be that for them. You know, you walk out in your yard and, you know, you're out there, you know, mowing or doing whatever you're doing with your yard and, and you know, you, you see your neighbor's lawn and it looks better. You don't go over and dig up your neighbor's lawn and put it on top of your lawn, right? You, you go find out what your neighbor did to make his lawn look so green, so you go over and do that to your lawn. It's supposed to work in the positive, not in the negative. You don't take from him. You go ask him and then you do what it is that's necessary. And the same is true for us spiritually. We need to remember that actions speak, speak far louder than words. And so here's the context. And, and it's positive for the first time in all of this. Interesting story. Most of you probably, you know, if, you, if you've heard uh, old classical music, you, you'll know that there's an instrument called a harpsichord. That harpsichord is actually the forerunner of the piano. And what people don't realize, the only difference really between a harpsichord and a piano is that a harpsichord, the strings are plucked very much like you would pluck a guitar string. If you picked up that guitar and you begin to pluck those strings, it would make a certain noise. But it's a very different string when you strike it with a hammer. And so the change was made at very, very, very slow in reaction time. And so old harpsichord music was not very melodious, didn't have sustain. You couldn't maintain those notes over a long period of time because they were plucked and then stopped because the the mechanism that plucked them remained on the string. Well, there was a change about the time of Beethoven and the piano was invented. And so now those same strings are freed up to make all of the sound that they can make. And the same is true for us in understanding this principle. Before we kind of sort of knew what it was, and, and now we're being set free to actually do it with everything that's within us. It, it makes a major improvement. It's revolutionary in how we view these things. So we go from being able to make some noise to being able to make beautiful music when we apply this principle. Because up to now, it's all been in, in a negative sense. And to give you an idea, here's some of the things that are said in the same vein, but have been said by philosophers, other religions, with regard to this same basic principle. The Jewish rabbi Hillel said it this way, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. The book of Tobit, which is in the Apocrypha, uh, it's, it's the, the apocryphal documents that go along with the Bible, their stories. Uh, this is one of the books in there. What thou hatest, do not to man do. Uh, The Jewish scholars at Alexandria, these are the guys that took the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and and translated it in so that we would have a copy of the Greek. And as you wish that no evil befall you, you be a partaker of all good things, so you should act on the same principle towards your subjects and your offenders. In other words, don't do any evil. Confucius taught it this way. What you do not want, want done to yourself, do not do to others. Ancient Greek king Nicholas said it this way, do not do to others those things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. You, you, you see, we almost always think of this principle in the negative. Why? Because it's easier. 
You see, now it's something you don't have to do. You can do nothing. But Jesus says, no, you go do it to them. Do it for them. Show it to them. Model it in such a way that when they see you act it out, they'll know what it is. It's not something that's in the abstract then. You see, not doing something that's negative is still in the abstract. Well, I didn't respond back, uh, you know, in some horrible words. Well, nobody knows what was going to be said to begin with. So it's still in the abstract. That's why the focus now, Jesus, turns to the positive, And it's why it's so important for us to realize it. These expressions go beyond our, our sinful nature as, as men, as women. And so Jesus says, look, you need to do it. Man says, don't do something. Jesus says, do it. Go and, go and do that act of selfless behavior. You see, man's basic problem is our preoccupation with ourselves. That's what we looked at this morning. We're preoccupied with our own selves. We think normally first, foremost, and some of us almost always of ourselves. We are, in fact, at times narcissistic. It's another Greek myth, by the way. And if you know your Greek mythology, Narcissus was actually a hunter. Uh, his his adversary was actually, when we say, well, that's my nemesis, well, his adversary was nemesis. Nemesis attracted Narcissus, knowing his weakness for looking at himself. Nemesis attracted Narcissus to a pool of water, knowing that Narcissus would stare into the pool of water. And Narcissus was so enamored with himself that he sat there until he wasted away and died. So when you say you have a nemesis, that means that you have somebody who's watching out after you knows your weakness and wants to draw you to that weakness. You see, our weakness is in the doing. Intellectually, we learn a lot of things. We can think about it in the abstract. Well, if I I want somebody to be nice, I just won't be bad to them. Do you see why that's wrong? That's the selfish motivation. That's the narcissistic side of it. That's you looking out after you. But to do the positive is to look after the other person. To not do the negative is actually so you don't suffer the repercussions of the negative action to the person. So Jesus says, look... Ask me for these things. Seek these things. Knock on these things. And then go out and do them. Because in Christ, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, as Romans 5 tells us. In Jesus Christ, his Spirit can empower us to love one another, John 13 says. In Jesus Christ, we can love each other in a divine way because God himself first loved us. You see, we're empowered to simply go out and do it now. That's what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to have intellectual understanding, though that can be good at times. We need to know uh, the direction we're going to go before we're going there. But you see, what Jesus said is, look, for the sake of the person that you're going to serve, go do it for them. 
It'd be really easy to just simply not do something so that you don't have a bad thing happen to you. But if you go do something, you're taking the initiative. You're taking the step. Did not Jesus take the initiative? Did not Jesus take the first step? Did he not come to this earth to die in our place? You see, he didn't just not give us his wrath. He came here and took took our wrath on himself. He's saying, look, this is what I've done for you, so now this is how you should live for other people. He he didn't just not come and judge all of sinful mankind instantaneously. He came and took our judgment on himself. You see, it's in the positive. He did for us so that we could understand we need to do for others. Don't just tell them what you don't want them to do. You go do for them what you want them to do for you. You model it. You see, it's not dependent on us. Because we're simply now carrying out that new life that we have in Christ. And so as you think on the, on the golden rule, remember that it's in the positive. It's you go forth and do for other people what you would want them to do for you. So if in your life you're lacking kindness, guess what scripture says? Guess what Jesus said? Go be kind to people. Not bemoan the fact that nobody's kind to you. You go be kind to others. If you have financial problems, you go give your way out of them. You go serve other people. If you have problems with having friends, go be a friend to somebody else. That's how it works. Whatever you want men to do for you, whatever you want women to do for you, you go do for them. And so fulfill the law of Christ. And it works because Jesus said so. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word to transform us. And Lord, it's so simple and yet so difficult because it requires effort on our part. Lord, we can't sit idly by and wait for these things to come to us. You've actually called us and stirred us to action. Lord, so if we want goodness to come to us, we need to be good to other people. If we want blessings, we need to be a blesser. If we want to experience forgiveness, we need to be forgivers. If we want grace, we need to be gracious. If we desire mercy, we need to be merciful. If we want tenderness, we ourselves need to be tender. It's so simple and so hard. And so, Lord, we, we, we confess that we need you to help us with this. It's out of our comfort zone. It's out of our box, God. And so we ask that you would instill in us that heart that is stirred to action. We're not going to be okay sitting on the sidelines waiting for you to do something in our lives. We're going to take action and actually go set in motion those things which will actually bring change to our lives and to the lives of those around us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. Pray that it would become 
more than just a, a principle in our mind. It would become our course of action, and that action we would do. We bless you, we praise you, we love you, we thank you, God, for what you're doing. Lord, in us and in this church, and, and help us now to go out uh, into the world around us, into our homes, into every relationship, and as we would want to have done to us, would we be found doing to and for other people. Lord, help us to be worthy friends and great spouses and wonderful uh, children. And Lord, we're just so grateful that, that you would impart to us such a simple truth that's so impactful. And so, Lord, bless us as we seek to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Going to have some prayer warriors, as we usually do, come forward and be available. Maybe you've got some issues in your life that you're having a little bit of a struggle just getting done, and you just need a little, a little help pushing forward, taking that first step. You know, that's always the most difficult step. And maybe you came and you don't even know the Lord. You don't, you don't know Jesus that we're proclaiming in this place. Well, that's a simple fix because his word declares to us that if we confess him before men, he'll confess us before the Father. If we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we will be saved. And so these prayer warriors would love to pray with you that simple prayer of just inviting Jesus into your life, confessing him before men. Maybe you've had this golden rule backwards for most of your life and you've thought that it said you just need to not do bad things to people. Maybe you've believed what most of the philosophers in the last couple thousand years have said. You just need to avoid doing bad things. Now Jesus said you go do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you for his name's sake. And now he adds to it a very simple way for us to understand it and so if that's you and you want to be prayed for come on forward we'd love to pray with you going to do a couple of songs and then dismiss us here in a few minutes the lord bless you and keep you be gracious unto you give you peace amen